I don't want to be rich, don't want to be popular, don't want to be selfish, no. I don't want to be a goat, don't want to be ignorant, don't want to be blindfolded, I just want to be countercultural. Violent, don't wanna have a vendetta, don't wanna be vengeful, no. I don't wanna be a soldier, don't wanna be militaristic, don't wanna help that cycle, I just wanna be a countercultural pacifist. I don't want to be a racist, don't want to be a capitalist, don't want to be sexist, no. I don't want to pass judgment, don't want to hold grudges, don't want to be hateful, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lover. I don't want to shop at Walmart, don't want to grow Monsanto, don't want to drink Coca-Cola, no. I don't want to burn petrol, don't want to eat perfect fruit, don't want to feel guilty, I just want to be a countercultural, pacifistic, unconditionally loving organic gardener. I want to be authentic, I want to be radical, I want to be optimistic, honest, I want to be humble, I want to be progressive, I want to be open, I'm inspiration, I want to be like John Wesley, or Sarah Major, or Anna Mao, I want to be like Martin Luther, or Martin Luther King Jr., like Santa Claus, Johnny Appleseed, Dirk Dillim, or Gandhi, Alexander Mack, John Klein, George Fox, or Jesus Christ, but mostly, I just want to be me. Just wanna be me. Hey, Dunker Punks, thank you so much for tuning in for another episode of the Dunker Punks podcast. My name is Emmett Eldred, and I'm one of your hosts, along with Pastor Nancy Fitzgerald. Today, we have a really fantastic conversation for you all. It's hosted by Elizabeth Ulrich Swenson, who is the pastor of the Wildwood Gathering in Olympia, Washington. Elizabeth has assembled for her conversation what I think is really a dream team panel of young adult leaders in the Church of the Brethren. We have Jennifer Keeney Scar, Tim Heishman, and Colin Scott. These are young people from all across the denomination in different areas of the country um, who have all taken up really serious leadership in this denomination. And they're willing to have the hard conversations about what this denomination was going to look like in the future. Now, I could keep talking about that, but I think what you'll find, which is what I've found, is that this conversation is so thoughtful, so insightful, and so challenging that it really speaks for itself, and there's nothing I could do to introduce it any better. The best thing I can do is just get out of the way and kind of turn into a fly on the wall as we listen to these four dynamic and inspirational leaders talk about their um, thoughts, anxieties, and hopes for the future of the Church of the Brethren. I hope you enjoy. We believe that the Lord is calling us to work together to carry out ministries of vital importance, both domestically and globally. Making disciples and growing as disciples of Jesus is our mission. 
Led by the Holy Spirit, we continue the work of Jesus peacefully, simply, together. To stay on the journey together, it is also crucial that the Church discern the compelling vision that this body of Christ is called to pursue. These were the closing words from the leadership team and Council of District Executives' statement on the authority of annual conference and districts regarding the accountability of ministers, congregations, and districts, presented as an unfinished business item at annual conference this past summer. As the Church of the Brethren looks towards articulating this compelling vision, I believe it is vitally important that young adults and youth be central in the discernment of that visioning. I invited three fellow young adults from around the country to have a conversation about this process and our own compelling vision. I'll allow them to introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about their context in the Church of the Brethren, and then I invite you to listen into our conversation collectively. And when we are done, I invite you to engage in conversation together with those around you, with those in your congregations, and perhaps on social media and online that we can continue this work of articulating our compelling vision together. Uh, my name is Jennifer Keeney-Scar. I am a pastor at the Trotwood Church of the Brethren in Trotwood, Ohio, which is a little suburb of Dayton, Ohio. Um, and I'm connected to the denomination through being a pastor in the denomination, as well as serving as Women's Caucus Convener for two years. Well, my name is Ken Peichman, and I live near Harrisonburg, Virginia. I'm serving as the co-program director for Brethren Woods Camp and Retreat Center with my wife, Katie also a seminary student at Bethany, and I uh, guess connected to the denomination through those um, district and denominational connections. And I'm Colin Scott. I'm from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. I crossed the Susquehanna River, though, which actually puts me in the Southern District of PA at the Mechanicsburg Church of the Brethren. I am actually, I guess, a lay person among you. I'm an attorney with the Public Utility Commission there in Pennsylvania. But my ties, I guess, into the denomination that way would be that I serve on the Southern District of Pennsylvania District Board, and I serve on their uh, Nurture Commission. I also serve the Brethren Community Ministries Peace Board, uh, which is affiliated with the Harrisburg First Church is a nonprofit that reaches out to the Allison Hill District or Allison Hill neighborhood in uh, Pennsylvania, which is the low income area of Harrisburg. And then at annual conference this year, I was elected to the Mission and Ministry Board for the denomination. And so my responsibilities there are only beginning and we have our first meeting in October. I also serve then as a uh, youth advisor for the Mechanicsburg Church, the Brethren, and teach the junior high youth Sunday school class at this point. Thank you. I'll just add that I'm um, Elizabeth Ellery Swenson. I'm the planting pastor for Wildwood Gathering here in Olympia, Washington. Um, I'm also on the board for Open Table Cooperative and generally connected to the denomination through annual conference and um, progressive church. So I asked us to focus on this compelling vision that came from annual conference. So there was, I'm sure you're aware, there was this statement from the leadership team and the Council of District Executives came up with this statement of response to a query around pastors, holding pastors and churches accountable. And into that document, they slipped this little nugget of spending the next two years articulating and embracing a compelling vision. And while that sounds exciting, and I'm interested to see how it goes, I'm also a little, I'll share that I'm a little wary about the process by which we come to this compelling vision. So in that interest, I think it's important that those of us who are going to be 
be tasked with being the next generation of church and living out that vision, have an opportunity to kind of talk about what that vision might be and how we see it. So I'd love to know, to maybe start with, like, what are you, what were your initial thoughts of the compelling vision? What are some things you maybe are excited about it? Or do you have concerns around it? What are your thoughts about the, that element of compelling vision as part of that statement? Can I ask an initial question? For sure. As far as this coming from the leadership team and code, who was tasked, I mean, was there somebody or a group tasked specifically with that or with kind of coming up with the compelling vision at this point? That's the big question, right? So they had this like this nugget of let's have a compelling vision, but there was no structure. There was no outline. There was no packaging around how we might come to that vision. Some of us have spent a little time asking that question of various leaders and their response has kind of been, good question. We'll get back to you. (laughs) Or we're doing it kind of this way, but then the way that they've articulated it to me then isn't panning out the way they said it would. And that's also part of this piece of like, let's talk about this because I would say our denomination doesn't necessarily have great past history with creating visions that we can follow through on or that are are very compelling. So that's part of this conversation too, is like, so what does it actually mean to have a compelling vision? And how do we articulate something like that at this point in time in our denominational life? I think you've pretty well painted the situation we're in, in terms of not knowing who's been tasked with it. Yeah, I think we're still waiting to see. I've heard talk about nominating certain people to it, and that sort of thing, but I don't, I, and I think that might have been an effort of code, but I really don't know. Like maybe they're working on putting, to, right now, putting together the people who will put the process together. And I, I guess for me that with there being no direction as to how this compelling vision is supposed to come together, I share some of the weariness that, that Liz mentioned as far as those of us who are going to be tasked with carrying it forward, having a voice on there. That would be a concern of mine because I already feel like a lot of times what I would call the young adults aren't well represented or, uh, I mean, whether it's at annual conference or on the various boards around the denomination, whether it be district boards, I don't know if that's partially from a lack of interest or just not being sought out in some ways. I, I don't know, but I think that if we're going to be the generation tasked with pushing that forward, that we need to rally or come together to figure out a way to make sure that our thoughts and perspectives are part of the compelling vision initially. Well, one of the key questions that I have around creating a vision is how do we decide what beliefs are central and what are secondary? And so chances are we're not going to agree on everything, but the question will be, can we come together around some fundamental um, core beliefs that all guide us? And how do we decide what those are and what are kind of secondary beliefs. Like, for example, we had brethren who believe in the peace position and those who don't, but we all still come together around Jesus. So somehow this process will have to get at what are those core beliefs that will hold us together and how much are we willing to determine which beliefs are secondary? Well, that sort of leads to my next question slash concern, which might be, are we looking for a compelling vision as in something we can rally behind, typically like, a sentence or two at most that articulate where our passion and ministry lies in the world? Or are we looking for some kind of statement of beliefs to articulate who's in and who's out? And I hope we're leaning towards the sentence or two that can give us passion and direction for the next X number of years of ministry and life together. But when you bring up that piece about like, 
how are we going to come up with something that we all can agree on? Can we come up with something that we agree on? I wonder if maybe we are leaning more towards something that articulates, in addition to this, this sort of snippet in the statement around this compelling vision, also had an outline for exit for those who don't want to get on board. So that kind of leads me to believe that we're looking at something that's a little bit more statement of belief language and less compelling ministry. Well, one of the things I find compelled to make a case for is uh, comes from the example of Gamaliel in Scripture. Uh, one time he was asked if Jesus, you know, what about this Jesus thing? What about this Jesus movement? And some really wanted to squash it and end it. But Gamaliel said, you know, just wait, you know, hold on. If this is a thing of God, you won't be able to stop it. But if it's not, don't worry about it. It's going to fizzle out. And so I, I mean, just as a young as a young adult who's grown up in this culture, but also deeply steeped in the biblical text, I feel like we can make a case for a little bit of openness to, to some of these conversations that we're having. I, I would want to encourage us all to be able to have those conversations, confident that God will sort it out with us in the end. Are you talking about like the conversations around compelling vision or like what conversations are you talking about? Any of the conversations that might be difficult for folks to have as we come towards a vision together um, and some of those belief things that Liz was talking about. So, so you like, you think based on Gamil, Gamil? Gamilio. Gamilio. <laughs> that we could come together in these conversations to have these open conversations and hopefully yeah, so, from that we could find the compelling vision. Yeah, I I'm inspired by Gamaliel and his wisdom and his ability to to kind of wait and see a little bit and give other people the benefit of the doubt that he might not agree with, as well as in Acts 15 when the Jews and Gentiles came together around circumcision and kind of were able for the most part to still be a community but have differences. And so that's kind of my hope for this process is that we can have a really honest spirit-led discussion and figure out can we still be a community but have different beliefs, but still be in the same body together. Your story also points to this reminder that it's not our compelling vision or our mission in ministry. It's God's, right? And that we're collectively discerning what God's compelling vision for us is. And that gives me hope. Like if we can, if we can articulate and invite that conversation, that's exciting. And that gives me a lot of hope for the future of, of our church. So what would it, fictional world, the four of us are tasked with coming up with this compelling vision. How do we have that conversation? What does it look like? <laughs> For me, like it goes straight back to the Bible. I mean, I, I think about, as I was thinking about the conversation we were going to have today and what my vision for the church was, is I've been spending a lot of time with the body imagery, that we are a body of Christ and all of these, like the human body has all these different pieces and all these different things down to, you know, sensory neurons and even like hair follicles and things, all these different ways of being and somehow working together for one good. Like if something is causing pain in the body, the entire body reacts. Or if something feels good, the entire body reacts. Or a fly lands on your skin and the entire body reacts. I guess I, my vision and my hope is that we could actually be that. A group of completely different people all working towards a single, a single goal of bringing the kingdom of heaven into the world, catching glimpses of that in the here and now. And I couldn't figure out, like I was trying to think of ways I've seen that happen. <laughs> Um, in the denomination, because to have that big idea is like, well, that's just great. Um, that's an idea. <laughs> but I think I've seen little glimpses of that happening, different people coming together and working towards something. 
we have a group of five churches in Southern Ohio that are coming together to do Love Feast this fall. So that's like five different traditions. I mean, because Love Feast, because it's own separate thing in every church. And that's one way that five groups of people are coming together to honor our, our shared tradition in the Church of the Brethren and our shared love of Christ and the honor of that final meal together with his friends. And we're navigating and negotiating all these different traditions and all these different customs and finding a way to make that work. And it's not a perfect process, but I think that's one way that I've caught this glimpse of the body, the body of Christ working together towards something. Well, in some ways, I think a back-to-basics approach is often good when trying to find vision. And for me, like you, Jen, the Bible is always the starting place. You know, I think of a project that the Mennonite Church did once uh, called the 12 Scriptures Project, where congregations would come up with their 12 favorite scriptures and bring them together. And I wonder if zeroing in on some of the scriptures that guide us the most might be a place to start. Um, I also think of I'm hearing Jim Wallace speak last week at the National Order of Belt Conference. He talked about one of the early chapters of Luke where Jesus gives his inaugural sermon um, in Nazareth and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. And then he went on to say, any gospel that, that isn't good news to the poor is not the gospel. Maybe just coming back to a, what what is the basic gospel that we preach and live? And is it just something that we do on Sundays or is it something that alters the way that we live every day. And I think if we looked at kind of the red letters and what Jesus actually did, I think our mission together would be pretty different uh, than what it is now. So I guess I'm a red letter kind of guy. (laughs) At Wildwood, over the past couple of months, we've been looking, the lectionary has taken us through some of the sort of the classic gospel stories. And looking at those through a lens of racial justice has been really powerful and sort of resonates with what you're talking about, Tim, of like using the gospel narratives, the gospel stories as our grounding place of how we live in the world and understanding the context and culture that they were told in and not just the surface level understanding, but really being able to understand what is being modeled and taking it to that deeper level and looking for connections in our current culture. It's not the same at all, right? But there's a lot of places where there's some similarities. And I think there's more similarities the more I look at it. It's been really um, powerful for me to sort of preach through those for a community of folks that don't necessarily have solid biblical understandings, but have some pretty, pretty solid social justice understandings. And so to say here, like we do these social justice things because in part, there is this biblical narrative that talks about them. And how does that empower us? And how does that challenge us to lean into the discomfort of the work further? And I would love to see us on a denominational level really dig into some of that stuff, particularly around our peace witness. I just think we have such a powerful voice in that, or we could have such a powerful voice in that, that I really would love us to dig into that in in a way that we've sidestepped in a lot of ways. Do you think that we have the ability to be uncomfortable enough together to get through those conversations? I want to say yes. And what I see on the annual conference floor tells me no, that we can't even have conversation on the conference floor that's meaningful and fruitful. So it's going to have to happen in some other avenue, right? The query process is not working for us. So how do we live outside the query process as a denomination? How do we make decisions? How do we live into our ministry and call outside of these annual conference statements? I think the query process is broken too. And I don't see that as an effective way to have this conversation. But working at a camp is inspiring in that somehow when we get together and we sleep in a small cabin next to people who snore and we have to make food together, 
and have extended intentional times together, it works. And people, like at summer camp at Brother Woods, people from all kinds of different theologies come together, and we just focus on following Jesus together. And I think if there were some opportunities for us to come together in intentional Christian community settings, I think we could work it out. But I think showing up for a week in a huge auditorium in Robert's Rose of Order, fixed, rigid kind of structures of communication, I don't think it's possible in that way, unfortunately. And, and that's not the way that the church has operated for most of its history. In some ways, I worry about the compelling vision being a little what I would call unwieldy as far as stretching across the nation at times and just sort of, you know, the four of us can sit here together and you could run a number of these with a number of people from all demographics, all backgrounds. And that would begin the conver- that would begin conversations. I think that you'd have those in a lot of ways be very fruitful. And, you know, then broadcasting it through a podcast like this would make more people aware of those discussions. I think that at times it becomes an issue of, I think we're getting at it, of how or when to hold those types of conversations. And I think as somebody who as much as possible attends even young adult conference, whenever that's held at a church camp or a college campus, wherever that may be, but has seen that over the last couple of years, in some ways as a missed opportunity for these kinds of discussions to occur. You know, we always pick a, a scripture that sort of the weekend revolves around. And yet I wonder if because you do have some of the more active, engaged young adults at those events, if it would be beneficial to spend more of the time when they're together and gathered to possibly discuss something like this compelling vision or to sort of figure out if there is not necessarily consensus, but some type of agreement or greater conversation to have around some of the hot topics that are facing the denomination, because I I don't know that there are that many opportunities with people being so scattered to come together that way. So, I mean, I've made the comment on one or two evaluations, just that I think there are times where that's a missed opportunity that I would like to see. Some of these discussions happen so that there is, I won't go as far as saying a united front heading in the annual conference, but a little bit more awareness of where in some way many of our age group and some of us are, yeah, where we are, just in some ways it can be, at least in my experience, it can be a little lonely. And now that may be personal more because in a congregation that doesn't have a lot of young adults, and I, I think maybe some others may be able to relate to that. And so I always look forward to that event as a time to come together with friends, meet some new people, and sort of feed me spiritually a little bit more than I may get kind of regularly. And I think that's one of the reasons that I've jumped into being involved with you know youth programming and, and things in my own congregation, because that is something meaningful to me. But I think that when those opportunities arise, when you have a group of us assembled, and I mean, maybe it wouldn't be on the conference floor at annual conference, but even making an effort for those of us interested in these discussions to come together somewhere there and really let it kind of free flow like we're doing here, just to see what comes of that. I think that's a really good observation, Colin, that that young adult conference isn't utilized in the ways that it could be. And I think that probably extends to other areas as well, that we're not utilizing district conferences. We're not, I don't know how NOAC was this year, Tim, I went two years ago. And I felt like they, they did a really good job of utilizing this space and providing a plethora of opportunities to engage in challenging conversations. And I would imagine with Jim Wallace being one of the key speakers this year, that there were ample opportunities to do that as well. And so I just sort of like, how do we invite those opportunities in other places of our denominational life? Yeah, how do we offer those opportunities and also offer them in such a way that you get a cross section of voices? That's been um, a struggle of ours in the Southern Ohio district, trying to get progressive voices and conservative voices in the same room is somewhat of a trick. 
finding a way to make that a space that is open and to find a way of communicating and communicating well that this is a space where we want different voices and we want to have these hard conversations. I can't help but reflect on a class I'm taking now at Bethany on conflict transformation. It seems like we have to do more than just have a conversation. It seems like we almost need to do some conflict resolution in whatever levels or spaces that seems because if we're not feeling like we can come together in the same room, there's probably more going on than just a simple disagreement of beliefs. And you know, for being a peace church, a living peace church, we should want to draw on professional resources or others to help us figure out why we're not having healthy conversations and what that means. And I could imagine that might take place on all kinds of different levels. And maybe that hits that point of my biggest sort of like reservations or concerns with this whole compelling vision process is I can't for the life of me come up with a compelling vision that would compel me or any of us to live in community in a way that's authentic and genuine without addressing naming and healing from the spiritual trauma and spiritual violence that we've inflicted on each other over the last 20 years, right? Like there's a whole lot more damage been done than a sweet little compelling vision is going to heal, right? So it's just like a tall order then <laughs> to expect us in two years to come up with this idea of what we are now that's, you know, you can put on a magnet and put on your fridge. Right. Yeah. Maybe it begins with this healing, with calling for healing and, I don't know, reconciliation and asking for forgiveness from one another as well. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure you can get healing without that practice. Yeah. And I don't know what that looks like on a district level or a denominational level. Um, I need an example from Mennonite Church Canada. Just, I guess within the last year or two, the denominational staff was cut down to next to nothing. And it was, a, I think, a quick decision and an upsetting decision for a lot of people. But the young adults of that church came together and held listening sessions across the country, just not to solve anything, not to come up with anything. I mean, the decision was made. It had to be made, as I understand it. And it was kind of the way it was going to be. But the young adults took it upon themselves to have these listening sessions and listen to each other, express their concerns, their hurts uh, by that decision. And just learning from that example and from our conversation today, I really feel like there's healing or at least understanding that has to take place before we can come together and have a rational or spiritual conversation about where we're going next. And some may decide that they're just not interested in being part of this anymore. And I think that's something that is okay to recognize. I mean, if that's where people are, um, but those of us who want to stay and who go through that process, we probably can't do that visioning work before we figure out where we've been and how we feel. I guess the question is, if it's untimely for kind of the compelling vision, where does sort of that reconciliation start? Sort of that healing process. I mean, does that start on denominational level? Does it have to start sort of smaller and kind of more decentralized before reaching that level? I don't know. But I mean, if we don't know that it's the right time for kind of a, a compelling vision because of the way that we've hurt each other spiritually these last however many years, then that would seem to be sort of maybe a question to try and address if that happens beginning in congregations or are individual congregations generally united enough that they don't feel the need for that reconciliation on that level, but maybe more on divided districts. I don't know, but that would be sort of a question that I would offer up. I guess if we're back to that conversation around the four of us sort of talking about how to begin a compelling vision, I, I, I guess I would ask that to start. 
you almost have to go smaller than district and smaller than congregation, like right down into our own individual selves. I think that's where it starts. I mean, confronting our own shadows and what keeps us from coming to the table to talk, what we're not willing to give up, what we are, what healing I have to do with people in my life (laughs) that I've harmed because of my beliefs or how I went about executing those beliefs or practicing them. I'm not sure we can lead a denomination anywhere unless we've done the work ourselves. I mean, and that includes talking about privilege. That includes talking about all of the isms. And that's really hard work. And it's really scary, uncomfortable, emotional work. And it's not work that I think people will want to jump into with bells on. I think it's something you you have to be braced for and spiritually prepared for. It requires a level of, level of trust and vulnerability that I don't think we hold as a denomination. You know, we're sitting here questioning this compelling vision, which means we don't trust the leaders that came up with this, right? And as much as we may like those individual people and trust those individual people, we clearly don't trust the process. We clearly don't understand the process either. But doing that deep internal work that grows out into deep community work requires a level of vulnerability that we are not culturally, socially spiritually versed in. And so I, I wonder how we, how we as young adults have the capacity to model that level of vulnerability for the rest of our denomination. That maybe we have, as a younger, younger generation, have the opportunity to tap into that in a way that others may not. I also think that the work that Jesus engaged in in his time and place required an equal level of vulnerability. He was calling out against the systems and cultures of his of oppression of his time, all those isms of his day, and put himself physically and spiritually on the line for those things. And I don't think that we can expect to be able to do that same work without the same risk. Are we willing to put our institutions on the line? Are we willing to put our credentialing on the line? Are we willing to put our spiritual comforts on the line to do this deep, vulnerable, hard work? And I think if we aren't, we have to answer that question for ourselves. And I think like you said earlier, Tim, like if you're not there, you don't want to do that, like blessings friend. And I hope your spiritual journey is meaningful for you, right? And and part ways that it has to be a conscious decision and something that we each come to the table having wrestled with for ourselves and ready to do the work together. Liz, when you were talking about vulnerability a little bit, I kind of chuckled because of the example that I thought of, of just vulnerability for young adults might just be showing up. I mean, I think about sometimes I've visited a church and, you know, Katie and I are the only people under 45 there. And that's a vulnerable experience. Um, You might walk in the door and people will say, oh, young people, you know, I hope you join our church. (laughs) Literally, I've gotten that. And I think just showing up to local district denominational events and modeling what it looks like to have difficult conversations might be an incredibly powerful thing. I mean, I know so many young adults who are completely turned off by the church because the church is incapable of demonstrating the love that we're supposedly known for. And the song we sing at camp all the time is they'll know we are Christians by our love. And a lot of times that love is nowhere to be found. And so it takes a lot of courage and vulnerability for young adults to say, yeah, I want to be a part of an imperfect body and model Christian dialogue. So I just encourage young adults who are listening to to show up and have these conversations and be the only young adult in the room and have a conversation with someone who's older that you might disagree with 
and see how it goes. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. Well, it seems like we're as probably good adult intellectuals effectively uh, questioned the process and deconstructed it. But I wonder if there are things that are near and dear to us that, you know, hopefully there is some of the things we've talked about do happen, some kind of reconciliation or peacemaking work or some kind of healing. I think those are really important. But I wonder if assuming in faith that these things do happen and that we do get to a compelling vision, are there things that are, are deeply important to you that you want to consider? I mean, one for me is, I mean, most everybody knows that our country is changing demographically and the Census Bureau tells us that um, by about 2044 in 27 years, white folks will be less than 50% of the population and that will only increase. And in elementary schools today, it's already 50-50. So the Church of the Brethren being, I don't, I could check Bowman's statistics, but well into the 90% white folk, we're going to quickly be part of a, a shrinking part of America. And so a concern near and dear of my heart, having grown up in the inner city and abroad, um, is that we really wrestle with what does it mean to be an almost entirely white denomination in a country that is becoming very quickly much less white. And what does that mean for our identity? And what does that mean for our mission? And are we willing to really finally, after 300 years, wrestle with some of our skeletons in the closet in terms of race? For me, you know, I've started to share some, you know, my involvement with, you know, youth and uh, young adults. And I, and I always feel like I'm sort of just past the age that I'm trying to really not necessarily help, but uh, make sure that there are programming or ministries to affect. But I mean, of course, I'm always concerned by sort of the way that people have changed their priorities so that time at church, whether it's being involved with youth activities, you know, versus other extracurriculars and the number of those continue to grow, but sort of how we manage to reach even, you know, high school age youth who, if they weren't involved from a young age, may be involved in too many other activities or too spread out to participate in either, you know, their local youth group or district events. I mean, in that age is up through college, and I think to that to the Young Adult Conference, where it's funny that one of the missing demographics is sort of that college age group at, at most of the time. I mean, you kind of have those who I feel reconnect sort of a year or two after college. So one of those I've seen, or I have, I have a concern that youth involvement is shrinking down. And I don't know if that's a, a disconnect, because there are, in some ways, there are fewer young adults too. So it's youth, and then you have that missing demographic up to people in their, you know, what I would call, I guess, the parenting age where they want their kids to be involved, at least initially, but just sort of how we deal with or how we address youth and young adult ministries and find creative ways to keep them engaged, effectively using social media or other avenues to bring them in. I mean, these uh, that's one of the places that I've always been drawn to trying to figure something out, but it is increasingly uh, what I would call difficult and at times frustrating. And I mean, I think that that plays into sort of this group sitting here, um, you know, and uh, one of the reasons that I wanted to join the, the district board and, you know, when I was called to serve on or to put my name forward for Mission to Ministry Board, there, there was some piece of me that said, you know, I, I know that we are an underrepresented demographic and that if we don't get involved, if we aren't sort of learning some of the institutions and, and in some ways I, I'm naive in those as far as the various ways the brethren reach out in some of the ways that the agencies are. If we don't start getting involved now, though, there's a lot of institutional knowledge that will leave or depart. So 
in some way that sort of guided me in wanting to get involved at this age so that hopefully I can be sort of that bridge too. But yeah, so it's just sort of the way that youth, young adults as a whole are involved. That would be one of the issues that I would bring forward as a, as a concern that needs to be or should be addressed if we were to reach the point of the compelling vision. So I've heard like Tim expressing this need for us to be to wrestle with racial justice and how we embrace a diverse and increasingly diverse church body. And Colin talking about how we do that with an eye towards young adults and the future of church. And so both of these to me sound like looking towards the future. What would it be to be a denomination that looks towards the future? And I wonder what would happen if we were to take a leap and say, we're not going to reaffirm or update any um, old annual conference statements. We will only be looking towards future statements, right? Like, so we keep sort of looking back to things we said 20 years ago, 30 years ago and longer to decide what we do now. What would happen if we let those things go, said those things were maybe correct for that point in time? But just as our diversity in our nation is changing and generations are growing older and generations are changing, that we can be looking towards not only what is true for us here and now, but what is true for the future church. We can no longer ignore the fact that church is changing, that the demographics of church have changed dramatically and continue to change dramatically. And what church has been for the last 40, 50 years is not going to be the same for the next and it may be a little brazen to say, but like, I feel if the denomination or any denomination, any church institution, congregation, district can't recognize that church is changing and we need to change with it, that's kind of a lost cause. If we can't agree on something so basic as like church is changing and how we do the institution of church and how we do faith community needs to be adapted and changing too. Like we can't even begin to acknowledge, address, or have any impact on these places where we want to work on. Yeah, I think everything that's been put forth so far is so meaningful and I think really important. What I would add to it is as the Church of the Brethren, we've talked earlier in this podcast about our peace witness, and I would love to see us come back to that and really wrestle with what that means for us as a denomination. Who do we pledge our allegiance to? what are we willing to sacrifice like, um, for what we believe in? I just spent a month with Christian peacemaker teams where we were asked to train and be as dedicated for peace as soldiers are for war. And so I wonder if that's something that we teach our youth coming up as an alternative to military service. And yeah, I just, I wonder what that means. Is, is, is our peace witness something we just give lip service to, or is it something we actually want to live out? I think that's an important challenge to the church, especially following this annual conference where on earth peace was nearly kicked out, you know, like that these core identities, as much as I want us to look forward, right? The future is where church is going, but we have this deep and rich history too. And that includes this really prophetic peace witness. Are we, that seems to be a really ever present conversation. Perhaps it's become less popular culturally to be a peace witness, but I think it has no less important. That would be a big one for me as well. Active peace witness, not just lip service. I like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I guess shifting years a, a little bit. One of the things that was kind of weighing on me as I was thinking about, you know, this podcast today was the way that we do church. Now I'm a member of a church that has a more traditional service and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I, I love when we sing some of my favorite hymnals and things like that. But I, you know, at times I've been asked what I would do differently about church. And 
in some ways I'm too indecisive to really come up with an answer for that personally. And yet part of me always thinks that I'm like a voice in that conversation, but that I may not be the right person to guide that because in some ways I'm not one who they're at risk of, of losing from church. And so I, I think for me, one of the things that maybe part of a compelling vision or just part of thinking about doing church differently would be for in a personal sense to reach out to the people who I went to church with growing up, who I were I was in the youth group with, who I would say are now unchurched, who haven't found sort of a, a home church and or have left the brethren as far as attending church regularly and asking them sort of what church looks like for them or sort of what would not necessarily draw them back into the brethren, but sort of how they would do church. Because I think that in some ways that has to be the focus. Um, I, I, I've decided I don't really like the term growth so much because that means too many people growth in numbers alone rather than in you know vitality or you know engagement. But in some ways, I think that if we think sort of the way that we do church, whether it's you know in the church building or you know around the dining room table, sitting around at a bar having a few drinks and discussing church and sort of what would draw people in and sort of what values they'd want to see pushed forward and sort of what their vision of it would be, of what church would be. In some ways, I think that that would be maybe a, a resource that we have, that brethren haven't really looked to tap into uh, is just those who grew up in the church, the brethren who aren't active or haven't been involved for a while, maybe why they left, but sort of what they would hope to get from church that could draw them back in and trying to see whether those at all align with the traditions and sort of the way that we see church going forward. Well, Colleen, you reminded me of a book that Liz and I read in one of our classes of Emerging Ministries for a Changing Church. And we read a book by, was it Phyllis Tickle? And she said that the church goes through a massive change every 500 years. And so like uh, in a thousand, the East and West split. Um, 1500 was the Reformation. And she wrote in that book, we're due for another huge change. And I think all of the anxiety that we're feeling and dwindling numbers and all these forces are coming together. We're right on the cusp of that. And that's kind of a terrifying but exciting time. But I like the way you're thinking, Colin, in that it's time to just try stuff. It's time to try different, like what you're doing, Liz, just different formats and different ways of doing things. Eventually, we're going to figure it out. But I think we kind of need to buckle our seatbelts and join hands and kind of figure out. Eventually, we're going to strike it right and figure out what it is with God's help. I am inspired and empowered by what we have shared in this conversation. And if what comes from the denominational's compelling vision is half as good as this, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> I think I'm just humbled by how big this is going to be. I mean, this giant conversation that some process is going to have to midwife into birth. It's quite humbling. And I'm praying already that that process is well cultivated and well handled. I've always liked that midwife language, that it's, it is something that is there that is birthing already, that we don't have to recreate it. We don't have to make it up. We just get to help usher it into the world under the best possible circumstances in a safe environment, all the things necessary needed to make it thrive. And Liz, I appreciate your couple of reminders throughout this conversation that this isn't entirely our doing. This is first and foremost God's doing. And I just, I'm encouraged by, you know, scriptures like, or two or three are gathered, God is present. And that comes in the context of a chapter on conflict. Because <laughs> it seems like Jesus knew there'd be conflict everywhere, always. But I'm just encouraged by folks like you who show up and are willing to help God birth whatever it is that's coming. You no, know, as, as 
overwhelming as this task can feel at times. In some ways, also very excited to continue these conversations and to sort of have been invited to sort of be in one of the early ones of them as far as thinking through sort of what it would take even to get to a point where a compelling vision could honestly be contemplated. Because I, I do think that, as we said, healing and reconciliation needs to happen first, and that there's a lot of independent work that anybody involved in the compelling vision kind of needs to do internally. And so it's a challenging time we're in, and you know, there's a lot of work ahead of us. But I, I think that conversations like this, sort of starting to plot out sort of how it could potentially come to fruition, is our they're meaningful and sort of uplifting in ways because at times thinking about, you know, our denomination isn't always the most thrilling or sort of the most encouraging at this point and kind of starting to move past that and sort of starting to have these conversations with the other people who are really giving them, giving this a lot of thought and prayerfully sort of weighing our words and our thoughts and sort of really contemplating how this moves forward. I, I find that very encouraging and and humbling. I agree with Jen's comment. You know, it is a humbling place to be in. And I think we are in good company. I think we have some good friends along for the for the journey. And it is a, a blessing and a gift to have this conversation with you all and to do this spiritual journey together with you all. So thank you very much for your vulnerability and your bravery and your prophetic voice in this space. And like I said, if this can be a reflection of our denomination, we'll be just fine. Thank you so much, Ren. It really strikes me that this is the third episode of this kind of format that we've hosted on the Dunker Punks podcast in recent episodes. Recently, we've heard two conversations that I hosted at Young at All Conference, and then we've had this illuminating conversation between Elizabeth, Jennifer, Tim, and Colin. What I've really appreciated in each of these conversations is how blunt, how open, how willing to challenge each other, ourselves, and the denomination these young adults have been as we've been talking about the future of the Church of the Brethren and what it means to be disciples of Christ going forward. I think that this conversation in particular did a really great job at isolating the difficult questions that are going to be uncovered when we have these hard conversations. What does a compelling vision even mean, and who is tasked with creating it? Will those of us who are charged with bearing out the imperatives of the compelling vision, which is likely to be young adults, have a real substantive role in shaping it? What are the beliefs that are central, and what are the beliefs that are secondary? What core beliefs are going to hold the Church of the Brethren together? Where do we see God moving in the compelling vision process? And do we have the faith to let God's vision, rather than our own, take precedence? How do we function as a body of Christ with different ways of being that are still united towards one common good? How do we find the gospel as our grounding place? How do we invite opportunities to have tough conversations that really get a cross-section of perspectives rather than developing echo chambers where we're only speaking to the choir? There are no easy answers to any of these questions, let alone the big question of it all, what is our compelling vision? Yet I do believe that young adults have proven themselves worthy and capable of having a seat at the table in this conversation. I hope that Church leaders who might be listening to this conversation 
first of all, have been moved by Elizabeth, Jennifer, Tim, and Colin, but also that they think very hard about how they can intentionally call in young adults to be at the table. And I hope our young adult listeners know that they can't just wait to be invited. They have to take their seat at the table. And if there is no seat there for them, they've got to bring a folding chair and set it up. It's also really important for us to recognize that we don't have to wait for these formal opportunities to have the conversation. We don't have to wait for listening sessions hosted by the denomination. We don't have to wait for opportunities at annual conference, at district conference, at young at all conference to have our voices heard. We can begin to have conversations just like the one that we've heard here. Informal, open, honest, challenging. I think Colin made a really good point that it begins by just showing up, by being there, by being present, by making ourselves available and approachable and open to these conversations. And I also think Jen made a really excellent point that actually it begins even earlier, that the very first thing we can do is start thinking for ourselves, what does it mean for me to have a compelling vision for following Jesus peacefully, simply, and together. Dunker Punks, that's your challenge for this episode. Meditate on those words, compelling vision. What vision of the church compels you to be a disciple of Jesus? And what are the ways that you know you have to change to foster God's kingdom? And how will you commit yourself to become vulnerable enough to endeavor on that journey together? Think about it and let us know. Thanks for listening. The Dunker Punks podcast is created by a team of contributors from all across the Church of the Brethren who are committed to having and hosting difficult conversations about what it means to be a disciple of Christ, as well as sharing inspiring and joyful stories of people inside our denomination and outside who are already doing just that. I really hope that you've enjoyed listening to this conversation today. If you did, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and encourage a friend or a member of your congregation to listen as well. If you'd like to support us or contact us, you can always do so by emailing dpp at arlingtoncob.org, and you can find us on social media at Pod. My name is Emmett Eldred, and I'm your host, along with Pastor Nancy Fitzgerald. Today's episode was created by Elizabeth Overy Swenson, and it was produced by Emmy Gehring and Kevin Schatz. Our Dunker Punks music is by Jacob Krauss, and our executive producer is Suzanne Lay. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.